Hey everybody, I'm Teddy P, trombone player from the band Blackburn, and you're here talking the blues. Okay, so do you go with Teddy P? I'm trying to rebrand. <laughs> <laughs> they've they've kind of got it going, so all right, fine, I'll go with that. Okay, so I mean. Straight up, my name is not very blues. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk to you because I've never spoken to a trombonist. So yeah, I'm pretty much the only one on the market, aren't I? <laughs> you want you and that shorty guy? Yeah, shorty. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, him. Yeah, <laughs> and don't forget you can't forget my man Big Sam either. True. So yeah, big Sam. Um, I, I guess I'm curious to find out how you got. Was trombone your first instrument, or was it keyboards? Actually, no. Uh, my first instrument was baritone. Oh. So I started in drum and bugle corps back in 1989, and uh, when I joined, it I was handed this piston rotor marching G bugle, chrome monstrosity with no case. I had a garbage bag for a case. And uh, that was how. No, I was in grade six, you know, and my parents, uh, together with friends of my mom and her friend, were talking about getting our, their sons, myself and, and my friend Richard, into drum and bugle corps as something for the kids to do, you know, through the winter. Well, baseball season was out. So, Okay. I went, and my friend didn't, and uh, I went, okay, this is kind of fun. There's a lot of cute girls here. I think I'm going to stay. <laughs> so, you know, and I stayed, and I got right into it. So it was baritone was my first instrument. And, and tell me about the process of getting right into it. Like, how did that happen? Well, so, I mean, I went for my first North American tour that next year with drum corps. So... It was a competing faction. Um, there, were, At the time when I joined, there was about 30 different units in Ontario alone that would compete every summer. But we also competed in the United States, slept on buses and in gyms, different places all over the place. So got a taste for that and then uh, fell out of a tree and broke my leg on Labor Day weekend before going into grade seven. And... Uh, and yeah, I just, I had nothing else to do. So I started practicing and practicing and practicing and practicing. And I was in traction in the hospital and my dad brought me my horn and I'd put a pillow in the bell and I'd practice all day. Uh, so I realized I got kind of good at this fast and uh, yeah, just kept going at it and going at it and going at it and uh, switched course to a core in Scarborough from Oshawa and uh, started taking off from there because I became a lead at the age of like 12. Tell me what it was about so, that that you liked so much. About which? About Sorry. joining... This drum corps? Yeah. I mean, it was... I mean, when you're 11 years old and you're in grade 6, you're going into grade 7. It's just, it was different. Uh, I thought it was cool to travel all over the place and be on buses and tour, you know, and wake up in different towns all over the United States and Canada, compete, and then get back on the bus after eating and, you know... <laughs> go somewhere else. And, you know, this is really foreign to me. And I just sort of said, this is cool. Uh, and then when I switched to the core in Scarborough, it was a really well-organized core 
that had a lot more money and, you know, better membership and, and better vision and history. So it all just kind of took off from there. And I, and it's, uh, it just came really easy once I understood what it was to play and my face started working. So Musically, what were you listening to outside of the drum corps? <laughs> so when I started, I was into pretty, some pretty heavy metal, you know, my brother was into Judas Priest and Guns N' Roses and Metallica. And, uh, you know, so I would try to listen to that stuff. But I mean, straight up, as soon as I got in the core, I switched taste. And I started listening to classical music and musical theater and, you know, symphonic, all of that, that kind of stuff. And then eventually got into jazz through my dad and my grandfather. And so. What was the, the drum core playing? What kind of stuff? Was it mainly jazz? Everything, really. Like, my first show we did was the music from Little Shop of Horrors, <laughs> man. <laughs> you know, and I can still remember my part, too. You know, <laughs> you know, it was Little Shop of Horrors. Like, um, one of the chords I remember that year that actually um, didn't win, but they were, they were top five, was the, the Blue Devils from Concord. They did the music of The Who. They did Tommy. Wow. Meanwhile, the core that won uh, the Cadets of Bergen County, they did uh, Elgie and Mippy for two in the music of Leonard Bernstein, you know, whereas the previous year it was Phantom of the Opera that won. So this would be basically the musical director would choose what he wants to present. Yeah, we, we had, you know, we had uh, core directors and, and all the instructors and everything. The instructors were all Humber grads. Uh, you know, guys like Jason Logue I studied with, who's a fantastic trumpet player here in town, and Danny Douglas and Jamie Oat and, you know, other players that are kind of in the Toronto scene, you know. Um, and Don Johnson was also one of our judges. So he was the famous brass teacher at Humber College from the 70s up into the 80s that every top brass player in the city studied with at some point, you know. So it kind of came out of that really good brass world, but... Yeah, they'd pick a show for the year, and that was kind of going to be the music of that we're going to do for that 11-minute show. Um, there's been a lot of evolution today in it. I have not been involved with it since I left. <laughs> um, my dad stayed involved, and you know he always kind of kept me in the loop with it. So, Okay, so you, you, you break your leg, and then you practice your ass off, and you become yeah. good. Um, yeah. And you're yeah. still playing the baritone. Yeah, I was still playing baritone. It was so it was grade eight. Uh, I was at a new school that in grade seven and grade eight. And in grade seven, it was just a big deal for them to have a concert band. So cool. <laughs> uh, but grade eight, they decided the music teacher decided that she wanted a stage band. And she was holding auditions, but I was out of town with drum corps. I happened to be in New York doing the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade with this all-star drum and bugle corps made up of the top players from every corps across America and Canada. How much were you on the road? Um, we were on the road basically from the end of June until Labor Day weekend. Every summer and then every one weekend a year, uh, one weekend a month. We were out in Buffalo doing camps, stuff like that. We rehearsed every week during the summers. We'd sometimes we'd rehearse on Wednesday nights as well. It was, you know, I mean, with this kind of stuff, no word of a lie. Like we're talking 18 hours a day playing. And are you, are you feeling like you're, like in grade eight, how good are you? 
Um, so I won the Canadian Individual and Ensemble Championships by the time I was in grade eight, and I placed in the top three in the world in individuals against guys that were 21 years old. Good Lord. Um, yeah. Um, I started winning gold medals when I was 13, you know, um, and by the time I was 14, 15 years old, I was the top player in the country. Wow. And in the drum corps world. So like it's, it was kind of one of those things where I, I, I just practiced all the time. Like <laughs> when I was in school, if I had detention, I had special thing, special permission to go and practice. <laughs> if I was talking to, you know, the high, the, the grade school girlfriend on the phone, I'd be going, Oh yeah, but I'm practicing into a pillow. <laughs> so yeah. So to go back though, I went back. So I was at Macy's Thanksgiving day parade in 1990. This was, I think I want to say 91. And I rushed back on the Friday. My dad was the driver <laughs> and he got us back and I ran to school for the end of school on the Friday at like three o'clock, three 30 in the afternoon. I said, ah! went to the music teacher. I said, I got an audition. I got an audition for stage band. I missed it. She says, no, 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 no. you're in. Oh, okay. Whew. She says, but here, take this trombone. I want you to learn it. We have practice on Monday. I said, okay. So I grabbed the trombone book and the trombone and it's the same mouthpiece as baritone. No different. So the face was already there. It was just a matter of how the heck does this thing work? Explain you know? the face was already there. I presume that's the way you, you, you communicate with your, with your, how you use your mouth. Our chops. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Sorry. It's a brass slang. So we refer to our, our mouth as our face or our amateur as our face sometimes. So the amateur that we use is identical really for all brass instruments. But what makes trombone and baritone identical is that the mouthpiece is exact i can take the mouthpiece out of my baritone and put it on my trombone or vice versa so it's the exact same mouthpiece so i don't have to worry about adjusting where my amateur needs to be like say if i play tuba right because i've got one that's this big and if i play tuba it's now i've got you know a small drinking cup on my face um and you know it's your tension on the elastic doesn't respond the same way so the switch to bar the switch from baritone to trombone was a piece of cake as far as the face goes. Mine was just how the heck do you get this slide to work? And that took a while. Okay, so that <laughs> to me, that seems like a really complicated process to figure out where each note is. But is it a complicated process? It really isn't. There's guidelines that you can use. You know, uh, like I have little tricks where I'll have my hand out and my fingers hit the bell and where my, where my hand is positioned, where my fingers hit the bell and my fingers are holding my slide, that's third position, more or less. The difference, I guess, with the trombone over all of the other inst wind instruments is that we don't have buttons. Right. So I can't push a button and know that that's one of these notes should come out. And I would imagine you have, have to be accurate slide. too, right? Like the distance that you're holding it has to be exactly the same for that certain note every time. You do, and you know how to cheat. You learn how to cheat. <laughs> it's 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 similar. Think it. I always, you know, think of it to violins, cellos, violas, double bass. You know, unfretted string instruments. Right. You know, you. It's identical to a fretted instrument in the positioning of where the note rests on the fretboard. Right. It's just there's no fret to define press here. Right. So similarly to say a trumpet. A trumpet has a button that you say, if I put the second valve down, 
I'm going for a B, that's probably what I'm going to get. Trombone, it's I'm somewhere that feels like second position. So it's that fretted bass or fretted violin kind of non-fretted instrument. Um, So we can manipulate pitch easier than everybody else. Okay, but you pick up the instrument, let's say, in grade 8. By grade 10, you're a different size. Your arm... No, well... You know what I mean? Like, I mean, you keep growing. So is that an adjustment as well? I know that sounds like a stupid question, but... No, not at all. It's uh, actually... um, When I broke my leg and I was in traction, I went through a growth spurt, and I'm shorter than I should be, and my arms are longer than my height. (laughs) So it actually really plays well to playing trombone. I have... So, like, it's... Really, the instrument doesn't change. You learn how to do seventh position. There are some people who cannot reach it. And so we have other trombones that you can actually use that allow you to get those positions without having to reach. And it's what's called an F attachment. So in the bell section, if you ever see a trombone with what looks like a whole bunch of plumbing, what they've got is they have an F attachment, which is a trigger, which you play with your left thumb. And that eliminates the need to play in sixth and seventh position. Wow. So so now you're told over the weekend to learn this instrument. And and yeah. just the idea of changing an instrument, that didn't bother you at all? No. No. I mean, when I went to school in grade seven and it was my first, I wanted to play sax. Now, I'd already been playing baritone and drum corps, but I really wanted to play sax because my dad had introduced me to John Coltrane. And Cannonball Adderley and, you know, uh, Coleman Hawkins and Ben Webster. And I kind of went, oh, yeah, I want to play that. And I was into Harry Connick Jr. And, you know, anyway. So he, uh, they, they, <laughs> my teacher gave me a trombone and a baritone. And now I knew the baritone. So I said, okay, well, let me try the trombone. And I let the slide fall off. <laughs> and I couldn't reach into my wheelchair. So, yeah, I think I'm going to just stick to baritone. But when it came to that point, because I was in the Harry Connick Jr. and starting to get into some jazz stuff, trombone seemed like a really natural evolution for that. Because? Well, it's, I mean, when you look at a jazz band, you never see a baritone. Okay. You see trombones, right. you know. And I, and I was starting to get into Lucian Barberin and Craig Klein um, and Mark Mullins and, and you know, even getting to know some of the Toronto guys that were around that were in the boss brass. So getting familiar with them, it just, it made a lot more sense from a trying to find inspiration, local inspiration and whatnot as well. At this point, do you think you're going to be a musician? Yeah, I pretty much knew. It was one of those things. It's, once I hit and I had that, that leg break and I, and I got into it, that, that 91 season in drum corps was really the turnaround and it was the kick in the butt. Um, and I was marching beside a guy who was world class, um, this guy Clayton Ellis, who was a phenomenal baritone player. He had won second a year before I got there in 1990 in the individuals. Um, he practiced harder than anybody. So he was a great role model for me to look at and say, Okay, so if you want to be good, that's how you do it, you know. The idea of competition, because this is definitely yeah. something that happens a lot in classical music. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you're going through it, how do you view competing for a certain prize as a musician? I mean, everybody, <laughs> to see, it's funny, because the high school I went to, my music teacher was all about 
no competition in the arts. He was very against it. And I get the why. And having been in both worlds, I do understand the validity of both sides. Um, when it comes to, you know, getting that grant, getting that record contract, getting whatever, life is a competition and you got to know how to be better. You know, um, it doesn't diminish the qualities of someone else. But, I mean, even all that kind of stuff, it makes art also subjective in the first place. Who's to say that somebody's art's better than somebody else's art? You know. But as a young kid winning these things, what are you thinking? Does it get, go to your head? Does it? Uh, you, you know, hey, you know what? Yeah, it, I, it was something I had to really work at. Because, you know, we even had a magazine that I was written about on a weekly basis that all of my contemporaries in my court were very jealous of. Uh, you know, and there, there was I took a lot of flack from it for a lot of years until they kind of wised up and said, oh, hey, maybe if we had just been doing what he was doing, we would have all been better. You know, so it's <laughs> karma is what it is. But it, for me, I guess having that kept me humble to know that, you know, I have these people who are kind of picking on me and bullying me about this stuff. So I'm just going to show them by being better. You know, and that was kind of that driving force in that regard. Other than that, it just it just felt like home. The second I kind of got into it and I went, oh, man, I can read, I can write, I can listen, and I can do all. This is, it was just like, you know, Gloria, uh, Gloria Lynn, the great choreographer from, uh, who did Cats, the London production of Cats back in the 80s. She talked, or Victoria Lynn, sorry. She talked about when she, got taken from a regular classroom and put into a spe an arts classroom with dance. And she said, all of a sudden she was around like-minded people. Be that was my opening. And all of a sudden I ended up being around like-minded people and just started going, Oh, focus. This is really cool. Let's keep going and see how far we can take this. And so, was that an easy process to prepare yourself for competitions and to practice? No, because we did it as a group, you know, and because we practiced so hard all the time and we did it day in and day out on the road and we lived it, you know, it gives you that taste like, you know, when a really good band is out and they're touring and you get them after they've been out for a while and they're still having fun, there is nothing like hearing them perform because everything about what they're doing is their love. And they're all firing on all cylinders. And you get to learn what that is at a really young age to then be able to take that back to your high school or your grade school and put it into that. And I, again, I was lucky that I went to an arts high school in Oshawa that was an audition program, you know, and we had a phenomenal staff with a ton of performing opportunities. So being able to kind of merge those energies was great. And, you know, and it, yeah, it was just a language that just sort of said, oh, okay, this is it. High school is just a formality for me to get out of here and go to college and then play. And so, was college going to Cumber? Is that the idea? Uh, yeah, that was the, always the idea. You know, like I was in grade nine, I started getting scouted by Berkeley uh, in Boston. And McGill started coming knocking after uh, music camp in grade nine with Gordon Foote. Um, so I was kind of always looking at, either McGill and then North Texas kind of came into the view, but I could never get the right scholarship. And it was Humber, oddly enough, one that was never really on my radar. 
<laughs> I won a scholarship from Music Fest for my OAC year to go to Humber. And uh, I ended up taking it because it was a great deal. And the trombone teacher at the time, Al Kay, was pretty much the finest trombone teacher in the country. Definitely one of the top five in the world in both jazz and classical. So just kind of seemed like a no brainer, you know. And so what are you thinking that you want to like you decide that you probably want to pursue music as a career? What did that look like to that young kid? So it's funny, actually. I wrote a, a Facebook post about this a few years ago. I called it 20 Years and Counting. Um, so it was my 95, the 95 year. I had finished doing drum corps that summer, and I went back. I, I'd actually decided not to march. I was going to work, try and do a jazz combo. And I did some jazz stuff with some high school guys, but... I saw a parade and I ended up going back. So fast forward to school's back in. I'm fast tracking through high school because I wanted to get out of Oshawa and get to Toronto and start playing. And I had met a guy when I was working my six weeks of a job before I went on tour <laughs> uh, who had an R&B band. And he says, oh, I'm going to be looking for a trombone player in the fall. Get in touch with me then and we'll talk. So 16-year-old self... You know, it's still before my birthday, so I was still 16. And I called this guy, Stan Up, Stan Mazda. And I said, hey, we met, uh, you know, I worked at the milk store across the street. He says, yeah, okay, kid, uh, listen, I'm going to Jamaica for a month or three weeks or whatever. And when I come back, we got some gigs, some corporate gigs coming up for the Christmas season. We'd love to have you on. them." Okay, great. So sure enough, time passes. I turn 17 <laughs> and he calls me for uh, the second week of October. And says, all right, let's get together. And I drove out to the drummer's place with this, with Stan uh, out in Oakville. And we played a whole whack of tunes that I had never heard of before. <laughs> um, and, but they're all like, oh, don't worry. This stuff is standard repertoire. Everybody knows this. You'll, you'll pick it up in a minute. Don't worry. And I'd constantly be going to the saxophone player saying, how's the song go again? <laughs> and, he, and he'd play it. And, you know, and, and bless him. I love Raton. But sometimes his rhythm ain't so great. <laughs> so anyway, I get these three cassettes and I wear those suckers out. It was Wilson Pickett, Otis Redding, Delbert McClinton, B.B. King, you know, Ben E. King, some Temptations, all that classic, great stacks R&B, little bit of Motown and a little bit of um, the Atlantic side as well. Right. I guess that's stacks, but, <laughs> you know, just all that all that great great old r&b so i started gigging while i was still in high school is this music and foreign to you before then like i or are you into this stuff before i mean i heard it occasionally but my dad and i listened to frank sinatra and big bands you know and i listened to some uh, i was trying to get into miles davis but it wasn't successful <laughs> you know but i was a big band guy because that's where all the trombones were you know it's i you kind of I found at that time I went where my instrument opportunities led me. You know, it's, I, I think, you know, I always like to tell the joke, I play the wrong instrument in a lot of ways because there's not, like you mentioned him off the top, there's one dude <laughs> on the scene. One dude. But you did point out how he, big that dude is. Exactly. I mean, he, and he's my homie. And I love Shorty. Uh, Troy, if you ever listen to this thing, shout out. <laughs> but, you know, it's there's the one guy, right? And it's when you're in the world, you know it. But 
it, not everybody always knows outside. So you go where that was. And at the time, you know, the boss brass was huge. So, you know, those were the guys I sought out to study with. Uh, Dave McMurdo had a big band at the time that was also good. So I sought out those guys to study with. Um, so, yeah, it's <laughs> that's just kind of where where it was. And then when I heard that music, I went, oh, yeah, mom kind of likes this. Yeah. OK, cool. And then, oh, look, you're working every week. You know, you're gigging at least two, three times a week. Okay, so and you're still in high school. Are you, are you um, playing with charts, or do you have to? How does that work when you join a band like this? <laughs> so the, there was one trumpet player, the Wolfman. He had some form of charts <laughs> and trumpet keys that were not right um, that I'd have to sight transpose and figure out. The saxophone player didn't write, so he would just teach me. I'd say, "How's Mister Pitiful go again?" The six count. I don't know what that means. And he goes, ba ba ba, and he'd play the line for me. Ba, uh, uh. And he would, but he would, he'd sort of skip long notes, so I wouldn't always know where everything fits. <laughs> so through osmosis, you learn. But I was the scribe. I was the trained kid. So I came in and started writing. There was another trumpet player, this guy Wally Jericho, that I played with, who had what he used to joke was Gregoric chant charts. So. Just picture notes without without uh, stems. It's like here's the notes you're playing, and he'd put a he'd put a donut for you know. Oh, we play this one longer than the others, but you'd never know whether something's an eighth note or a quarter note or a sixteenth. Or at least you knew no notes. And he played C trumpet, so at least it was in concert. <laughs> okay, but what what is what is the key to a good horn section? Okay, um, I mean, I'm going to go with the ability of a horn section to be really killer is to be able to articulate as one. So this, it's got to be tight. It, it's basically one player, three instruments simultaneously. That's the idea. And this is what I used to get from drum corps. Like, how do you take a section of 20 and make it sound like one? playing three different three different notes right right and that's just your section forget the fact that there's 60 brass right so how like that whole concept so it's that ability and that's that's the the first thing second to me is just killer arrangements you got to have somebody who knows how to write some hip stuff or the ability to create as a unit simultaneously and cleanly in a manner that nobody knows that you're creating on the spot which is rare. So how does that happen when you join this band? There's no charts, and now you got to fit in and play as one. I took those tapes that I wore out, and I started with charts from the originals. I said, this is how the original recording went. This is how we play it. I'm, I'm blessed that I have a really great memory for, re for remembering things. When it comes to music things, I'm eidetic. Like, I can... I can remember exactly what we just played, how it went, what we, where it was screwed up, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so I utilized a lot of that stuff just to be able to go, oh, this is how we do this. But I was constantly writing because I was in, in high school writing for, and I was, the funny thing was I was writing for a couple of bands at that time. I had my own big band that I was also leading as well as a combo and still doing all my studies. 
when I got to college, it was playing in all the college stuff, plus playing in multiple bands and running multiple. So just constantly writing, right? And it's evolving. And eventually that horn section all transitioned and we got in. The big change was when we got Bobby Bruff. The great, the one and the only. He's the one who really taught me the most when it came to how to write, what harmonies to hear when you only have so many instruments and which ones are going to give you the most color, the most tension. Um, and he, you know, even with, and it was all without teaching me. It was just from observing how he did it. And that, yeah, he was the one that really, really changed stuff. Okay, so you said that you went where the instrument took you. Um, yeah. I, I know you've led some of your own bands. But how does that work when you when you're first starting out? What what is it? You go to Humber and then you start. I want to become a musician, a full time musician. How does that work in terms of how you set yourself up to get jobs? Well, what was kind of weird was I was already doing that when I got to Humber. So it always sounds weird to say, but Humber was kind of a little anticlimactic in that regard. Is that in that I was already working as much or more than most of the faculty. Um. I was just doing a different style of music than them. They were they had the show gigs, then they were doing all the jazz gigs, and I was doing a lot of jazz too at the time, but I played a lot of R&B and a lot of blues. And it was just a case of, for me there, it became, I wanted to get the best out of improvisation, arranging chops and composition chops, and then just play, do lots of playing. You know, because the one thing I learned from my upbringing in drum corps and having a high school with 30 uh, ensembles is play and you got to play as much as possible. So that's really what it all came down to was just as much playing as possible. You know, Robbie Botos got, got where he is from that. <laughs> so when you're in the drum corps, you're, you're basically um, reading and playing. You're not improvising. No, and no improvisation whatsoever. So tell me about that, because there's always that line between improv and people who read, and people who read really well and can execute like, like it's coming right from their gut or whatever. But how do you, coming from that background of reading and having that discipline to read and um, read notes and to execute that, how, how does the improvisation part start with you? Um, well, it's... I kind of try and get into a mantra of forget everything that you know <laughs> and then just trust your ears. You know, it's, I definitely have a tendency to overthink. Um, there's a thing I call the case of the us, um, which every student at Humber gets at some point and some carry on throughout their career. And it's, you're playing a line, so you have the us. I still get the uhs um, if I think. So I find being fully trained definite advantages when it comes to being on the spot to come up with a rhythm, figure out what somebody's playing, to be able to lift something simultaneously. You know, oh, hey, we got to play this song. Can you guys learn this? And I can listen to it once right out a chart and say here and transpose it for tenor and alto or whatever, whoever's in front of me in minutes. Soloing is is a case of I look at the chords, I look at everything, and I go, I know exactly what to do. Now it's 
shut up and do it. <laughs> you know, and it's, does that make sense? Um, and that's why I love playing with around guys that are not the analytical minds now. You know, I spent a lot of time scholastically playing with the analytical minds. And there are those that are able to transfer, like Pat LaBarbera or, you know, um, amazing players like that, right? That can transfer the analytical to the creative and make it seamless and great every time. But the ones that are always the most transcendent are the ones who don't think about it. You know, I, I can imagine that that's probably easier said than done. Totally. <laughs> totally. You know, I just think about someone like John Coltrane, who I know we're talking blues. Well, he was a blues musician. Uh, you know, I think about someone like Train, just from a horn perspective, is nobody was more driven than him to seek something new. And he never stopped. You know, when you talk about improvisation, he'd sit there and say, whoa, wow. I just feel like I haven't even scratched the surface. Meanwhile, he just played a 65-minute blues solo that made your hair f come out, <laughs> you know, and he's going to go do another one right now that's even better than what you just heard, you know. So it's you got to have that mind for some of that stuff, you know, and he had the ability to know what he was doing and being able to have that zen focus and do it. How important is New Orleans music to you? It's everything. Because? Know, th know them, know me. You know, I think... Huh, I love that you asked this. <sighs> Everything we listen to today in any genre came from there. It all started there. It started because... People of color were allowed one day where they could practice some of their traditions. And Europeans and, and travelers saw this and went, wow, what is that? Isn't that amazing? And some guy by the name of Louis Gottschalk said, I should write something down. And he wrote down the first what he saw based on his interpretations. And from that, and then the work songs from the cotton fields and everything, everything we listen to today came from that. The exception of classical music, I'm going to leave that out, right? But, <laughs> you know, it's all modern music. So in New Orleans and Congo Square was the place that that all happened. I presume you've been there. Yeah, a few times. A few and, times. and what was it's, the experience it's kind of, of going there mean to you? What did that mean to you? I mean, the first time I went was on a drum corps tour, actually, in 1993. We were doing world championships in Jackson, Mississippi. So we got to go down and got, a, got to go across Pontchartrain on the big bridge and everything. And that was just a thrill because at that time, I was a huge Harry Connick Jr. fan. I liked Leroy Jones. Uh, we were there in August, so none of those cats were around. <laughs> They're smart. Even the bugs even the bugs took off, you know, <laughs> um, you know, so oddly enough, though, I did actually meet Harry there. He was in town, but none of the other players were around. So and I was kind of in awe. I had a fanboy moment of meeting Harry, my hero at that time. Um, so but it, having gone back as an adult, like I was there for the Mardi Gras Millennium when I was working on cruise ships and we went back a couple other times. I've been back for Jazz Fest and and it's it's Mecca. 
as a musician and particularly as a horn player, it's Mecca, you know, and our, our biggest musician that we all owe everything to Louis Armstrong. I mean, Hey, that's hometown, right? He's, he is the hometown, even though he's not buried there, that's, he's the hometown boy, you know, and know him, know me. So yeah, the, New Orleans is everything to me musically. Okay. So you get out of school what path are you going? What's what's your what are you hoping to achieve and what are you hoping to do? Oh well, I ended up going on cruise ships for a couple of years because the R and B band that I was with, we had come out with a CD that was really good and it was a fantastic band. Sadly, the band leader was really volatile. Couldn't keep the good players around because he was so volatile. Um Screwed over by agents, things didn't happen, so guys started, it's things started to fizzle. And so I said, All right, I'm gonna go on a cruise ship, and I just kind of took off for a couple of years. Tell me about that experience. And I, you know, you, I, it for me, it was like going to living in a dorm because when I was in college, I was working the whole time, so and I was living on my own, and you know, it's it was a totally different experience than living, uh, say, on a campus where you know, co ed kind of thing. So yeah, it was uh, it was a blur. I had partied. I was 21 years old away and just I went crazy. I met some amazing musicians, uh, got to experience some incredible cultures in all the islands and the countries that I went to, um, played some great rumbas and cha-chas. <laughs> but I can't imagine that and, uh, being an easy life. Hey, look, at the time, I thought it was, you know, there was times when you go, oh, I hate this. But really, I look back on it now and I say, hey, it was the best, most fun experience. <laughs> I worked on little ships. It, I wasn't on the big, huge ocean liners that you see today. I was on ships that were like 800 people, you know, capacity for the passengers. So I knew the captain really well. I knew the staff captain, you know, <laughs> very different experience. It was all pre-9-11. So things were just different out there at that time. And I got away with all kinds of stuff that would never fly. <laughs> oh, do tell. Never no. fly. Oh, never fly. Never fly. Well, you know, musicians. Anyway. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it was just a, it was a great, really fun experience. I still have a lot of friends from that time. Um, one guy, actually, that still records for me. Uh, from Mobile, Alabama, my buddy Shane Shane Filed, you know, and uh, he's a teacher down in Mobile now. When I met him, he had just came off the road from being with the Temptations. The trumpet player we had, Teddy Murdoch, who I still chat with, he's in L.A. Uh, He would been uh, just come off the road from playing lead trumpet for Ray Charles for 30 years. Wow. So, you know, it was great musicians, phenomenal players, great friends, still talk to today. You know, and it was just a, it was a good time to, to learn about stuff. When I came back though, that's when it was a lot of change in the Toronto scene, you know, from as far as the clubs go and they took out the smoking and, you know, and venues started to close or change their MO. So things became a lot more lean than they were in the late nineties. And what, what are you thinking so, at that point? I just, you know, survive, try and get some gigs, you know, play whatever can come along. Um, I, that's when I started playing blues and playing with Billy Blackburn, the, uh, my, my brothers in arms, their uncle and their dad's former drummer. 
So I started playing with Billy for years and uh, him and Ricky, one of the singers from the R&B band, the, that was the band for a while, you know, and this great guitar player, Joey Michelon, rest all three of their souls, sadly. Um, but Joey was a great Toronto guitar player from the 70s and the 60s. Ricky was an enigma, um, a, a, a vestige from a long gone era uh, who could sing better than anybody. Uh, and then Billy, yeah, Billy was the most original and unusual drummer you'd ever heard. So, <laughs> is this how you kind of connected up with Blackburn? Yeah, actually, yeah, it is. Um, I was looking for a studio to record an EP for a new band, a New Orleans style, trombone shorty inspired style band. And uh, Billy kept on me and saying, man, you got to call Corey. You got to you got to call Corey. He's got a studio. Call Corey. He'll give you the family discount. Okay, and I called Corey, and I went in, and I guess Corey was, course was just kind of impressed with my work ethic because I went in and with the with the rhythm section banged out four bed tracks in three hours. This is gumbo yayas. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, to do that album, so it's we banged out. Actually, it was five bed tracks. There was one that we didn't use. Uh, I'm still sitting on. Uh, but five bed tracks for the rhythm section in three hours. And it was just, you know, and Corey wasn't used to musicians being organized. <laughs> so he just, he called me, you know, I think what, or emailed me a week later and said, Hey, look, we're doing an album for Blackburn. Do you think that you could put together some horns? I said, yeah, sure. What, by when? Six days from now. Oh, okay, sure. And that was just the case of send me the tracks and got to work. So how does that work? You, you get, you hear the music. Do you know what the lines are going to be? Like, is, does that come to you very easily? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. You know, we've, uh, I mean, I look at the last project that we've just, I, I think we're done. <laughs> <laughs> I know Andrew was saying maybe or somebody on that, on that one, but one of us, I don't know, maybe. It sounds like it's done. Um, but that process, you know, there was one track. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to mention which one. I had the hardest time coming up with anything that i liked you know coming up with stuff is easy i always say i always say that stuff you know you can come up with you know anything you want for horn parts really like okay another example jenny ty i did her album her first album that, that came out a few years ago and she sent me the tracks and when i sat down to do her her album her parts just screamed at me they just said this is what needs to be here and i wrote that stuff out and we got into the studio, we put it up there, and she, I think there was one thing that needed to be changed because it was a mistransposition on my part for a tenor saxophone. Shouldn't that A be, or shouldn't that G be an A? And Jenny caught it. And that's it. She didn't, like, you know, it's really rare when your client doesn't change anything. You know? And then when you do horn parts, horn parts have the ability to change an entire song. You know, for example, imagine September without the horn part. Right. You know, like, what would that sound like? You can't imagine it now because that's all you've got, right? So it's, when you kind of, when you nail it like that, it's really gratifying to know that the music just spoke and you figured it out. And other times, you can have, like, for one of the Blackburn ones, I think I had 10 different ideas. I hated all 10. <laughs> You know, but does that mean, and I had to go to meet. Does that mean they would have hated it too? Because it's such a subjective thing. 
I, I mean, they don't get to hear the process uh, the way that Neil and I did this particular album with them. Um, and thankfully, I had a co-writer. I had Neil with me, as always, Mr. B. Uh, <laughs> so I was just able to go, dude, I am tapped. Please take over. <laughs> you know, it's you know, it's no different. I've always been lucky to have a musical foil of some kind in my career. I, it's funny. I've always been friends with drummers. They're always my closest friends or band leaders. But I've always had a musical foil. And usually it's always been guitar players, sometimes saxophone players, you know, instruments I don't play very well. So Neil right now is that foil. But like Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn, you know, Duke knew that he wasn't the only one. It's only his mind. And, and it's Duke's mind, of course, are the finest ideas. But Billy Strayhorn had some pretty darn and, you know, and they were always quietly trying to outdo each other. <laughs> but, you know, Neil and I do that and we have literally come up with the exact same thing during the process, too. So, you know, yeah. So writing parts, it's easy depending on the statement you want to make, I think. I think that's the caveat that I should have put in there. It's easy depending on the statement you're trying to make. Tell me about that relationship with Neil. Oh, he's the other half of my head, you know. Um, he, it's interestingly enough, I mean, I had met him years ago. Way back at the revival in like 2000, 2001. Um, when it was the, I don't even know that the band had a name yet. But it was Shamaka Ali, Rich Brown, and Andrew Craig playing keyboards. And they did this Monday night jam session at Revival. And it kind of clashed with Kevin Bright and the Sisters Euclid up at the <laughs> Orbit. But eh. it's all right. You go see Kevin. You want to play. So you go over to the Revival. That's how it worked. Um, and they were funky. And that's where I first encountered Neil. But then I never really ran into him. I'd always see him on all the best gigs like Jack Soul or on the, the Toronto show with Marilyn Dennis or like, Oh, those are the guys making all the, getting all the good things. <laughs> <laughs> but I never really knew him. So, and when I, when things finally started to happen with Neil, I mean, Hey, he caught me up with Blackburn cause he's known them for ever, you know? And, uh, now it's just to a point, you know, he's uncle to my kid. I'm uncle to his kids. You know, we uh, we're, we're roommates on the road. We travel together. Uh, and when it comes to coming up with horn lines, we just can think. And like, as I mentioned, you know, when you asked about what makes a good horn section, he and I never have to talk about how we approach something. If there's something new to play, we just instinctively play it exactly the same. Why? How does that happen? Some kind of voodoo. I wish I could explain it. I, I think it, it comes down, I maybe just comes down to just the understanding of what, you know, in this band, it's time for James Brown. You know, and we understand that the James Brown horn section articulation is like this, you know, Tower Power-esque, you know. Whereas if we're playing, say, Jenny Ty, and when we're doing her stuff, I'm pulling a little bit more from Chicago. The band Chicago or Blood, Sweat, and Tears is a little bit more smooth, legato, sometimes staccato and, and marcato, but 
Whereas James Brown, sour power is always staccato, marcato, like short, pixie, you know, right in there. And that's how Neil loves to play. And I get it because I've listened to, just like him, every horn section that there is and kind of listen to how they do it to say, all right, let's do it that way. You know, and I, he and I can just know. I will admit we freaked each other out in the recording of this new album um, a couple of times because there were two instances where we did literally come up with the exact same thing without hearing what each other was coming up with. It was it was freaky. <laughs> how, how long did it take you to know that there was this connection? All about five minutes. Really? It, 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 yeah, it was really quick. You know, it's just I just got the guy. He understood. He understood that I knew. You know, and and the more we get into it, the more we just realize, yeah, you know, he gets it. We don't have to explain each other. Explain it to each other. It was just that fast. Okay, so you know how I feel about Blackburn and what a great band they are. Tell me from the guy who's on stage with them why they're so good. Or what makes them oh, man. Like who they are. How long we got. Um, I mean, I always tell everybody this. You know, I'm very biased, yes, but I'm also unbiased in that. I've always loved the band for years since I first was brought aware to them by their uncle. Um, each musician in the group, in my eyes, is the best in the country. You know, for example, Corey Blackburn. A lot of people tend to go for really, you know, somebody who throws down a really good solo. They do the tricks. They're entertaining to watch. And I get that. I love that, too. If you look at Shorty's drummer, you know, Joey, he's amazing. And he, he reminds me of Animal from the Muppets, um, especially when he's got his long, curly hair. <laughs> you know, and I love that. Like Dave Grohl. I love watching Dave Grohl play drums. He's a different beast than when he's out front singing with the Foo Fighters, right? Taylor Hawkins was another one that was great to watch play drums, really entertaining. But it doesn't always make them the best, right? What I always, my, my compliment for Corey has always been, he is Stubblefield and Starks in one guy. And he's always sort of said, oh, man, thanks. You know, don't say that. It's because he's so humble. But how many drummers do you know that just will groove when it comes to taking a solo? Because mm -hmm. he, he would just rather lay down the thickest pocket that he can lay down for everybody else to sit on top of than to take a solo or do anything flashy. And I love that. That to me is the greatest drummer because it's, I understand the music's more important than me waving my arms in the air. Uh, when it comes to bass, I mean, talk about a band that's spoiled when it comes to bass. <laughs> I mean, what? I mean, you had you had Mark Ie back before I got in the band. Howard Ie, who's also our producer, who's you know possibly one of the funkiest human beings alive. Right now, we got Colin Barrett, who again is just a phenomenal musician. Forget just being a bass player, a musician. Roger Williams, you know the ultimate bass sub 
who can play anything at any time and do a great job of it and is the nicest guy. And, you know, the guy we had for a while there, like Andrew Stewart, who how he doesn't win bass player of the year in any genre for any poll that exists for bass playing in the music world, how he's not the guy just tells me that people ain't listening because he is the greatest bass player I think I've ever heard in my life. Um, Brooke, I mean, man, I use him for my stuff all the time. Anytime I can get, I, and I've known Brooke the longest of all the brothers because uh, he used to play with Billy and Ricky. And uh, I've seen him improve so much over that time. His writing's amazing. His guitar playing, I just love his guitar playing. He's the funkiest guitar player that there is in Canada um, for doing straight-up rhythm and the ability to solo. Mm-hmm. I mean, Dewey, I mean, come on. What was it, seven years in a row? Keyboard nominee? <laughs> Five years in a row for vocals? The guys, you know, I want to do stuff with Dewey on my own. I got some stuff with him. So when you've got, and then Neil, I mean, hey. Mr. B. <laughs> so I, I, I'm spoiled to be around guys this good. You know, it's there's times when I stand back and I just have to kind of pinch myself to say, boy, am I lucky to be among these guys. And, uh, you know, Andrew said it and I, I will agree with it. Not be, again, not because I'm in it or anything like that. Just I'm a fan of music. You know, it, it is the best band in the country. You know, I don't know anybody else that can do what this band can do. And when he said autopilot, he's right. (laughs) (laughs) We do go on auto, like, you know, it's a not a well autopilot, well oiled machine. That's it. We are a well oiled machine, despite the chaos. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, it's something to witness you guys playing live. It's I've seen it many times and every single time you guys blow me away. It is, it's definitely special and it's, you know, I'm just, I always feel like the luckiest, luckiest guy on the planet to be able to sit there and play with those guys, you know, and to be the only trombone player, as I mentioned in Canada, (laughs) that seems to be there other than whoever might be playing with Andre Bisson, if he happens to have a bass uh, trombone player that, that week, uh, or some of the other smaller bands, but nobody else is traveling with one. So does that make it like, are you surprised that you, you would get calls are you surprised that you don't get more calls uh i am surprised neither or neither um you know it's i know i don't get some calls because there are some that just think i'm unavailable because yes if there's a conflict in dates blackburn's gonna get the the, the first call so i know i don't get some work based on that and that's okay i get it you know as a band leader myself, I want people that can commit and that I can rely on. And I don't always want to have subs, you know, and uh, that's fine. I'll always take sub gigs. You know, I'm going to be playing with Danny B tomorrow night at the, you know, so I'll be subbing in there <laughs> and that's totally fine. You know, and I would love to have the gigs, of course, but it's, it is what it is. You know, there's just people tend to go for sacks always first. And if they do, they'll either add another sax or a trumpet. You know, everybody thinks I play trumpet anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're the trumpet player. Yes, that's the instrument I play. Yes. What's, what's the one thing about trombone <laughs> that nobody knows? 
Or what's the misconception the about na- the trombone? The name of it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's that. No, when you see it in the case, it's not golf clubs. Um, uh, you know, I've had cops stop me and say, those golf clubs? No. Oh, somebody stole some golf clubs. Can we open that, please? Yeah, it's a trombone. Here you go. Oh, sorry to bother you, buddy. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I guess the biggest con- it's just, you know, everybody always says sax is sexy, right? Trumpet's cool. Listen to how high they play. Trombone is blatty? <laughs> As Calvin Beal once said, the horn to schlippy schlippy. <laughs> wow, 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 wow. You know, it's the sound of every adult on Charlie Brown. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it has always been a novelty instrument. You know, even back in the trad jazz days of Kid Ori and, you know, all my forebears, you know, my forefathers kind of thing. It was always a novelty instrument. You know how, you know, when, when you listen to, Guys like Chuck LaRocca or Nick LaRocca, sorry, do the horse whinny, you know, like with the trumpet, the, you know, and it it had always has had that novelty s aspect. Tommy Dorsey was one of the first ones to kind of change that into the lyrical component. And then JJ Johnson was the one that really said, no, 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 no. It's a legit solo instrument. It just hasn't spoken to folks. So that's why I'm always shorty. Go, go shorty. (laughs) keep playing with the chili peppers and the Foo Fighters and Lenny Kravitz and NBA games and MLB. (laughs) You can do it, man. (laughs) Is there a solo that you, you think people should listen to that, that shows what a trombone can be? Oh man. Yeah. I I mean, oddly enough, I go back to, I go back to classical boring stuff. (laughs) Like my, the first thing that comes to mind is Christian Lindbergh playing uh, Chartist by Vittorio Monti, you know, which is a violin sonata, you know, and to hear that played on a trombone or to hear Al Kay play it with the true North brass and do it in a modified key. So where he, where it goes from major to minor, he actually goes from major to a minor third up to even extend the range of the solo part. And now he's hitting in notes on the horn that, you know, and flying through stuff. Um, anything J.J. Johnson ever recorded, you know, um, I just think is, is, is amazing. We all know the solo from I've Got You Under My Skin with Frank Sinatra. You know, that's, you know, Irby Green or whoever happened to be in the Count Basie or the Nelson Riddle Orchestra at the time that played that. Um, for Shorty? Honestly, I think his most amazing playing is his trumpet. And that's not to diminish his trombone playing in any way, shape, or form. But uh, he's a better trumpet player than he is a trombone player. And he's pretty much one of the best trombone players <laughs> out, out, there, out there. So that's kind of scary. You know, I, Neil talked about it recently. He saw him at Massey Hall and he says, I am converted. Because <laughs> he hadn't seen him live. He'd only heard the recordings. And yeah, yeah, it's good. It's good. It's good. And you see him do it. And your eyes just pop out like, you know, a cartoon figure from <laughs> Looney Tunes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, yeah. And for him, it's, you know, you got to listen to his version of uh, Sunny Side of the Street. 
It's just unreal. Unreal how he does that. It's so good. He sounds like Pops. Do you, do you have goals? Yeah. You know, I mean, at this point, my goal has now kind of become get music back into a classroom on a regular basis. I want to introduce brass instruments to as many kids up here as possible because that's really what we're missing. How do you do up that? here? Uh, I just gorilla busk, man. I take my brass band and I go out on the street and I just play. I'm not playing there for particularly for money or anything. I'm playing to just get the kids so that they can see it. Because the one thing I've been asking this question and I've been working on an article for a couple of years now on what happened to the Toronto music scene. What happened? You know, this, we used to have a lot of work. I used to joke that back in the late nineties, if you wanted to send out a package to every club in the city that had live music, you need to take out a bank loan. Right. Cause there were so many of them and all of them paid. It wasn't cover gigs, you know, or pay what you can. Those existed, but they were few and far between. So, you know, what happened? I analyzed it. But one of the biggest things I think it came to was during that period was when the government of Ontario cut the most from education. They took it out of the schools. They took away extracurricular activities for kids where teachers couldn't stay after school to do the big band or that brass quintet or that woodwind ensemble, you know. So there's that. A lot of new cultures that are new to Toronto don't value music the same way that we do as far as the day-to-day goes. But honestly, the big thing for me, as I mentioned off the top, when I started playing, there was 30 drum corps in Ontario alone. You know how many there are now? Not a one. Really? I think Dutch Boy might be trying to do something out in Kitchener, but that's it. And we don't have marching bands. So I'm kind of on a, you know, I'd like to see some marching bands going on. Uh, everybody always says it's too cold. I say, bull, look at Buffalo. Right. Look at Minnesota. Look at Chicago. They have them. And they have the exact same climate as us, if not worse. So that's a non-starter to me. I know football isn't as big here, and that's part of the reason, <laughs> you know, as far as how we do it. But kids need to have marching bands. We need to see that because they need to know that it's okay that mom and dad shake their backsides to a sousaphone. And look how you, know? you turned out. Yeah, I mean, it's, I was lucky that way. I was lucky that way. I hear a sousaphone and I go dancing. <laughs> <laughs> I run. <laughs> uh, I'm going to wrap this up. But, um, cool, thank man. you for doing this. Um, hey, thanks so much, man. Final question. Tell me about yeah. the relationship between you and your trombone. What is that? Oh, Frankenhorn. Um, I mean, it's it's uh, it's a love hate relationship. It goes in cycles, I guess, like any marriage. You know, sometimes things are really good. Sometimes things are not so good. Um, it's uh, every day I pick it up though, and I put it to my face. I feel complete, just like when I play with my son. It's the only two things in, in my life that make me feel complete. Well said. Thank you very much for doing this. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. All right. Anytime.